Well, this morning we're closing out a series called Chronic, and just as the name suggests, it's about the stuff that comes back to bite us. You know, and, and typically when you talk about chronic issues, you're talking about something bad. As I said last week, you don't tend to sit down with your friends and say, I don't know what's the matter with me. I'm just dealing with chronic success. It just keeps coming back, keeps coming back, keeps coming back. No, we talk about chronic in terms of something that's bad. And then the tagline of our series is breaking the cycle of a dead-end lifestyle. And I don't know that any other theme is going to apply to that tagline as much as today's theme does. Because oftentimes, the things that are chronic in our lives have cycles. And unless we're able to identify the stages of those cycles, we're really not able to even understand what we're going through, much less be able to get some help. So today, I want to talk to you about a chronic issue. Well, sometimes when I get up to talk, I'll have a theme that I know doesn't really touch everybody in the audience. And I'm a little bit concerned about that because I wonder, well... would someone being out in the audience think this really doesn't apply to me? I'm not worried about that today at all because our theme today applies to about 100% of us, all right? We all deal with this, and here it is, insecurity. Insecurity is one of the most destructive emotions in our world today. I think if you'll think about it, probably 90% of the damage that people have done to you in your life, if you think it through and run it back to its core, you'll discover that it was insecurity. For instance, I think insecurity is the basis of racism. I think people are racist because, because they're insecure about themselves. And, and so we could go on and on and on. My guess is that most of the damage that you and I have done to other people, we could trace it back if we were objective to insecurity in our lives. Well, by definition, insecurity is a lack of security, duh. Or a better definition is a feeling of fear concerning one's person or condition. In other words, we're, we're insecure because we think that something is not right with us. Something, we, we come up short in some ways. Our, our person or our condition or our position. We think that someone is going to take away some, something that we've achieved, some measure of success that we've, we've experienced. Now, now, guys, let me give you an axiom, because here's the first place we need to start today. I want to give you an axiom that governs insecurity, and I think that we're going to see this clearly, if nothing else, today. We are prone to insecurity in any area which tends to define us culturally. In other words, if we're going to be insecure, it's about some area that tends to define us culturally. I'll give you an example of this by absurdity. I can't fly an airplane. I'm impressed with you guys and gals who are pilots, but I can't fly an airplane. I can barely drive a car. Uh, but I'm not insecure about that. If you came to me after the service today and you said, you can't fly an airplane, well, that's not going to bother me because that doesn't tend to define me culturally. I can't perform surgery. We have a number of surgeons at New Spring, and and a lot of you are, you know, you're so skilled. I mean, you do microsurgery and stuff. If you came to me and you said, Mark, you can't do surgery, I'd say, you're right. I can't even carve a Thanksgiving turkey. But that's not going to make me insecure because it doesn't define me culturally. But if the issue goes to being something that has to do with being a man or being a husband or being a dad or being a leader or being a decision maker or a communicator, if, if it has to do with something like that, then I can be prone to insecurity because those are the kinds of things that tend to, defend, to, to define me culturally. A personal example, I, I always knew I wasn't the normal pastor. I wasn't the normal minister. I'm a little bit iconoclastic. 
And I felt for a long time that since I didn't fit the mold, since I didn't fit the image, the stereotype, the prototype, I was insecure about that for a long time until finally I just said, hey, if God invited me to do this job, he has a reason for me to do it, I'm going to be myself. But anything that tends to define you and me culturally, we can, we can be insecure in that area. Let me give you a couple of factors that exacerbate that. If we're dealing with something that tends to define us culturally and we're under pressure and that pressure, number two, can expose a weakness, wow, that's when our potential for insecurity gets an exponent by it. Let me give you a couple of stories from the Bible. Neither of these are my story that I want to talk about today, but let me just give you a couple of examples because when you open the Bible, you're going to find people dealing with all the issues that you and I deal with. And the most insecure person in the Bible is a guy named Saul. A little background here, please, because some of you know his story well. Others of you, this is the first time you've heard about him. If you want to read his protracted story, you can open your Bible to 1 Samuel, and you can read all about this guy who I think was the most insecure person in Scripture. Here's the background. Early on, God had said to Israel, I will be your king. It was as if God chose Israel to be his people as a showcase to show what he could do for people who were committed to him. And God said to Israel, you don't need a king. I will be your king. I will help your economic circumstances. If you get in trouble with war, I will give you victory. I will give you help. That would be an awesome thing for a country to have. The only problem with Israel was they looked around at other nations who had kings. They had some figurehead. They had some royalty that would lead them on days of high ceremony or that would lead their troops into battle. And Israel was feeling insecure because when people asked them, who's your king? They would say, well, God, well, where is he? Well, he's invisible. And so the people went to their spiritual leader, Samuel, who was like the conduit between them and God. And they said to Samuel, we want a king. And God told Samuel, it's not a good idea, but I'll give them one. And God chose a guy named Saul. When we first find Saul, Saul is chasing donkeys. Now, I don't know what you expect to find on the resume of a king, but chasing donkeys is probably not, well, I wouldn't look for that to be high on the list. And there are a couple of factors that make this even worse, because number one, he lost the donkeys, <laughs> was chasing the donkeys, number two. Number three, couldn't find the donkeys. Would you hire this man? I mean, here is the guy, and God picks him, and God says, I want him to be king. And Saul is saying, you want me to be king? And, and there came the time for the ceremonial anointing of the king, and Saul was so freaked about this that he hid among the baggage of all the people who had journeyed there for the anointing of the king. But God gives us this awesome line in 1 Samuel chapter 10. God says, as Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart. That doesn't mean he got a new pump in his chest. What it means is God supernaturally equipped him to be king. Here was a guy who was a donkey chaser. He lost them, was chasing them, couldn't find them. And God all of a sudden gives him the intellectual horsepower to be king. This is where it's going to get personal for some of us. Because if we look back far enough in our lives, we can see a time when we were donkey chasers. But God in his goodness helped us to get the right kind of education, meet the right kind of people, learn the techniques that we need to learn, and all of a sudden now you're a king or a queen or you're at the top of what you do. Now, you know what? That's healthy. If you can say, I remember where I came from, and God has been good to me, and God has given me magnificent opportunities. As long as that's a healthy thing, then we won't have to deal with insecurity. But I want to talk to some of you today, because even though you're at the top and you're elevated, when you look in the mirror, you still see a donkey chaser. I think that was Saul's issue. 
He was insecure. Why? Well, because being king defined him culturally. He had to be a leader. But he was concerned that when people looked at him, they saw a donkey chaser. He saw himself through the eyes of other people. He gave other people permission to define who he was. Let me tell you about a story that happened in Saul's life. Actually, it was the beginning of a downslope that destroyed his life. This may not be an important story to you, but just watch the components, the emotional components of how this develops. Israel was under attack by the, uh, by the Philistines. They were a very powerful people group. They were a very powerful army. They actually had weapons the Israelites didn't have. And they knew they were overmatched. Saul had called out the army. I mean, this was an agrarian culture, and whenever they had to fight, Saul had to call forth the army from the fields, and all these soldiers, untrained as they were, came to help Saul. They waited to attack the Philistines. They got to camp, and the first day came, and they didn't attack. The second day came, and they didn't attack. And all these people who have left their fields and left their farms to come help Saul fight the Philistines are wondering, what is going on? Let me tell you what was going on. God had a thing, and he said to the Israelites that he did not want them to go out into battle until they had worshiped. They had to have a sacrifice. But Saul can't perform a sacrifice. He's king. That's not his job. It's the job of Samuel, who was the spiritual leader of Israel, to perform the sacrifice. And so they're waiting, and Saul is waiting. You know, they're playing the Jeopardy theme for, for seven days, and nothing is happening. And Saul says to himself as he sees his army slipping away, I've got to take matters into my own hands. And he does something that was an act of blasphemy. He usurps the position of Samuel and offers sacrifice. And as soon as that happens, Samuel shows up, confronts him about it. Well, I want you to listen to the exchange between Saul and Samuel. Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines are ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled, I felt forced, Samuel, I had to do it, to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. And Samuel said, how foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom of forever. So think about this. What was the area that defined Saul culturally? He was king. He was a decision maker. He felt a weakness. He was under pressure. He cratered, and the rest of his life, you can read the book of 1 Samuel, the rest of his life was paranoia and insecurity. Well, let's go to a second character. The woman we're going to talk about now is a great woman. She is not like Saul. She is one of the heroes of the Bible. And by the way, heroes can be insecure. Great people can be insecure. And what we're going to discover in this woman's life was even though she was a great woman, she was prone to insecurity because something tended to define her culturally, and she felt that she came up short. Her name is Sarah. She's married to Abraham, whom God said would be the father of many nations. Well, the only problem is it's hard to be the father of many nations if you don't have any kids at all. And so Sarah was watching the biological clock tick. Went through her 30s, no kids. 40s, no kids. 50s, no pregnancies. 60s, no pregnancies. 70s, well, what are the odds? Now, here's what you should understand. They didn't know about what we know about biology today. If a couple was unable to conceive, everybody turned and looked at the woman. And it was even worse than that. They tended to look at the woman to think that somehow she had gotten God upset with her, and that's why she couldn't conceive. So can you imagine how Sarah's feeling? She's defined culturally by her ability to have a baby. 
she's under pressure because God has made this promise that they would be the parents of many nations, and she doesn't have a baby. Let me show you how insecurity will cause a person to behave. This is in chapter 16, verse 2. So Sarah said to Abraham, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abraham agreed with her proposal. Let me ask you a question. At a moment of insecurity, have you ever suggested something you wouldn't want to do in a million years? Something you wouldn't want. But insecurity is talking. And so Sarah's feeling the pressure. She's under the gun. She is defined culturally by her ability to have a baby. She can't have a baby. God has told her husband that he's going to be the father of many nations. Everybody's looking at her. And Sarah's saying, well, you know, I, don't, I really don't want this. But Abraham, why don't you go sleep with my servant? Well, Abraham's a man. And his wife has just asked him to go sleep with a young woman. So Abraham said, okay. <laughs> Some men don't have a clue. Really. This is Abraham's cue to say, Sarah, listen, we're just going to trust God in this thing. How'd it work out? Well, Abraham had sexual, sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarah with contempt. Then Sarah said to Abraham, this is all your fault. You tell me some things haven't changed in thousands of years. <laughs> this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show you who's wrong, you or me. <laughs> well, ladies, this is your opportunity to say things haven't changed in thousands of years. Abraham replied, look, she's your servant. <laughs> you do with her as you see fit. <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with this. Sarah treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. Do you see how insecurity can work in the life of heroes? This is how it works. See, we're prone to in insecurity in, in any area that tends to define us culturally. And it's exacerbated if we're under the gun and if we perceive some sort of weakness that we're trying to shelter in the first place. Okay, let me get to my story. Because I deal with insecurity. And when I look for somebody in the Bible to sort of reflect my own insecurities... Well, actually, it's not a man, it's a woman. But our personalities, man, we have to have the same personality. We are so much alike. Her name is Martha, and she is a friend of Jesus. In fact, Martha owns a home in a little town called Bethany, which is two miles outside the city of Jerusalem. And we believe that whenever Jesus visited Jerusalem, he would stay in this house because he was, buds with, he was best bud with this family. He loved them. They loved him. Martha evidently was a well-to-do woman. She was the owner of the house, even though she has a younger sister, Mary, and a brother, Lazarus. Martha is the picture of record here. She is a grand dam of a, of a magnificent home. Friends with Jesus, file that away. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, they came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, not Marsha, Marsha, but Martha, Martha, <laughs> the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary's chosen what is better and that will not be taken away from her. All right, let's, let's peel the layers of the onion here. How is Martha defined? She is defined 
by being a guest. Jesus is teaching, and, and Martha went to Jesus after he was teaching and said, Lord, why don't you bring all your posse over to my house, for, and I'm going to fix dinner for everybody. That's a wonderful idea. But it's a big undertaking. I mean, if I said to you, hey, I'm going to come over to your house if it's okay today for lunch, and I'm going to bring all my staff with me. I mean, a lot of you would freak, right? And, and so that's what happened to Martha. Martha, Martha, bit off, Martha bit off more than she could chew. You ever do that? Lord knows I do. Oh, yeah, I can handle that. Martha said, Lord, just bring them all over. Just, just, just all of them. You know, Peter, he'll eat a ton. John, Judas, Jesus, just bring them over to my house. I will take care of everybody. No small job. But the worst part about it was it wasn't going well. Have you ever said, oh, I can handle that project, and then it's not going well? And boy, here's the thing. This is what I knew. I wish I knew how to communicate. Somewhere at some undefined moment, a huge transition took place with Martha. It stopped being about making dinner for Jesus, and it began to be about if this thing blows up, it's going to look bad for Martha. When did that happen? When was that moment when Martha's insecurities began to drive the train? Because I think she had a wonderful idea. Making dinner for Jesus, wonderful idea, cool thing. But at this moment, when it's not working well, all of a sudden, she's defined culturally by being a guest. She's under pressure. A weakness has developed because it's not going well. And Martha freaks out. And not only that, she begins to look to blame other people. Where's Mary? Where is that sister of mine? And when she goes looking for Mary, she cannot believe it. Jesus is teaching in her living room, and Mary is sitting on the floor on her backside listening to Jesus teach while Martha's having a disaster in the kitchen. <laughs> and Martha loses it. She is mad at Mary. She is mad at Jesus. She invited this man to her house, and he is enabling her sister to be lazy. Look at her. Lord. Don't you care that my sister is, I mean, that is an accusation of saying you don't care. Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I made a mistake in last night's service. I want to make sure I don't make it again. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> How many of you agree with Martha? <laughs> I, said, well, I, I mean, I do. Are you kidding me? I'm trying to do something important here. My sister's out there sitting on her backside listening to Jesus. He's not doing a thing to make her help me. I've asked for all these people to come over. You know, it's more like an old story I remember many years ago hearing, uh, you know, a family had invited the minister to have dinner with them, and, and they wanted to show off by having their little kid pray. And they asked their kid to say the blessing, and the kid whispered to dad, I don't know what to pray. He said, well, just tell them, you know, the dad was being sanctimonious. Just pray what, just say what you've heard me say. <laughs> so the little boy folded his hands and said, dear God, why did I invite all these people on a hot day like this? <laughs> Do you know why we agree with Martha? It's because we're caught in the same performance trap, and it resonates with us. 
we tend to get our definition by how we perform. And so when Martha goes storming in there screaming at Jesus, we're saying, well, I sort of get that. Well, Jesus is God, so we're going to learn a lot from him. I mean, how did he respond to Jesus? Like, oh, Martha, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that. What was I thinking? Mary, please get up and go help your sister. Not hardly. He does something here that, as far as we know, he only did once. He called her name twice. Martha, Martha. I give $50 I don't have to know how the inflection went. Because it could have been a rebuke. He could have looked at her like, because you know when you call somebody's name twice, for all of you who are parents or, or, or spouses, you know when you call that person's name twice, it's like sometimes, do I have your attention? Martha, Martha, I mean, a gentle verbal grabbing by the shoulders, do, 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 or am, I, am I communicating yet? Or it could have been sad, Martha, Martha, when are you going to get this? I don't know. But I do know this. He said, you are worried. The Greek word for worried there is marimna. It means to be torn in separate directions at the same time. It's a word that's often translated stressed in the New Testament. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be, oh, I wish I knew how to preach. It will not be taken away from her. See, here's the deal. Most of our stress and insecurity is about stuff that isn't going to matter. Jesus is saying to Martha, look, if the dinner comes off, great. If it doesn't come off, great. 30 years from now, what difference will this dinner make? Mary is sitting here listening to words, words that will change her life for eternity. Okay, let's go to school with Jesus. And I want to, I want to show you three lessons I learned about insecurity from this story right here. And if you're taking notes, I, I, don't, I don't like taking notes, but I'll tell you, this is one time it might be worthwhile. Number one, insecurity will lead you to make inferior choices in life. Jesus said, Mary has chosen what is better. He didn't say to Martha, hey, making a dinner for me, that was a sinful thing, horrible choice. Jesus didn't say that. It was a good choice. But he said, Mary has chosen what is better. When we become insecure, we start making choices. And I think if you and I will look objectively upon the choices we made when we were insecure, worried about our appearance, worried about our position, most of those choices as we look back on them were vastly inferior to the better choices we could have made. Here's how it works, like a geometric proof. Number one, insecurity is fear. Number two, fear makes us behave irrationally. Number three, irrationality leads us to make bad choices. Many, many years ago at our old location, I wound up counseling a couple. And I liked them a lot, both of them. These were not bad people. These are wonderful people. I think the first thing I remembered about meeting them in my office is that they were impeccably dressed. He was, he was fashionably dressed. She was dressed in designer clothes. I would learn later that they had a magnificent house, two excellent automobiles. And yet, as I said and listened to that couple, she said to me, my husband doesn't love me. Well, now, he, he never cheated on her. He never abused her. He never did anything like that. She said he, he works all the time. He's never home, and he just doesn't care about me. All he cares about is money. 
And the moment she said that, I mean, this guy said, I can't believe she's saying that. He said, you know, I, 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 I do everything I do for her. I do everything I do for my kids. I, I want them to have the nicest house. I, I want them to have fine automobiles. I want them to dress in the nicest clothes. And, 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 and I heard them talk, and I thought, well, they're like two ships passing in the night. They, they're not connecting with each other. Later on, I would have a chance to talk with him one-on-one, and he began to share with me about how he grew up. He was a little younger than I, so this was unusual for our times. He grew up in a ramshackle house with a dirt floor. Other kids in his neighborhood had nice homes, nice houses with nice flooring, but they had a dirt They swept a dirt floor. His clothes, when he went to school, were clothes that had been secondhand, thirdhand. They had holes. They were worn. They were cheap. And kids made fun of him because he lived in that house and that he wore those clothes. And he said to himself, this is not going to happen in my future. I'm going to apply myself in school. I'm going to find a way to get into college, and I'm going to give my best in college. And he did, and he earned his undergraduate degree and then earned his graduate degree, and then he got a job, and he rose through the ranks. And as he did, he said, my wife is never going to know what it's like to live in a crummy house. My kids are never going to know what it's like to wear cheap clothes. They're going to live in the best house. They're going to wear the best clothes. They're going to drive the best automobiles. That was his way of saying, I love my family. They're never going to experience what I experienced. But you see, like with Martha, somewhere along the line, there was a transition. A man wanting to take care of his family or a woman wanting to take care of her family, that's a noble thing, but it got all balled up with being a donkey chaser. And he wound up losing what was most precious to him. The second lesson from Jesus may sound a lot like the first one. Who knows? Maybe it's just a restatement. But when I look at this story, I think about this. Insecurity will trap you and me in the tyranny of the urgent. That's not my expression. I read a little booklet called The Tyranny of the Urgent when I was in my 20s and transformed my life. The basic idea of the tyranny of the urgent is a lot of times what seems to be the most important thing is not the most important thing. In other words, what's screaming at us right now, especially if we're insecure and it defines us culturally, like Martha, you know, for her, it was making dinner. Let me tell you what Mary was thinking. Mary was thinking, hey, we can have dinner anytime. Having Jesus in your living room, that's priceless. But Martha lost sight of that because the urgent began to scream at her. Now, a lot of us can deal with the tyranny of the urgent if we're not insecure because we can think clearly and we can make choices. We can say, well, that may be screaming at me today, but the world's not going to end if that doesn't happen. I'm going to spend time with my family. I'm going to spend time with my wife. I'm going to spend time with my husband. I'm going to do the things that are most important. But if we're insecure, man, that urgency starts screaming, and we can lose better choices. New Spring is a, a young church. So a lot of you may never have heard this song. I grew up, I'm a child of the early 70s in music. A lot of the music, I mean, music I heard was pretty heavy and mostly rock and sometimes still coming out of the Vietnam days and Watergate days. It was angry protesting kind of music. But I remember in 1972, I think it was, there was a song that climbed the charts and got a lot of play. It was just a man with a guitar. It was a folk kind of song, but I'm guessing that all the baby boomers who are around driving your GTOs and 
Mustangs back in 1972. You remember this song coming on the radio. For all of you who are way too young to know about the song, let me give you the lyrics. It goes like this. My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way. But there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. He was talking for I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. I'm going to be like you. And the cast in the cradle, the silver spoon, little boy blue, and the man in the moon, when you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then, son. You know we'll have a good time then. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today. I got a lot to do. He said, that's okay. And he walked away, but his smile said, I'm going to be like him. I'm going to be like him. And the cast in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon, when you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then, son. You know we'll have a good time then. Well, he came home from college just the other day, so much like a man that I had to say, son, I'm proud of you. Can you sit for a while? He shook his head and he said with a smile, what I'd really like, Dad, is to borrow the car keys. See you later. Can I have them, please? And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon, when you coming home, son... I don't know when, but we'll get together then, Dad. You know we'll have a good time then. I've long since retired, and my son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I could find the time. But my new job's a hassle, and the kids have the flu. But it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. Sure nice talking to you. And the cat's in the cradle, the silver spoon, little boy blue, and the man in the moon. When are you coming home, son? I don't know when, but we'll get together then, Dad, you know. We'll have a good time then. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, my boy was just like me. Harry Shapin's song is timeless, isn't it? When we're insecure about who we are, it drives us to make inferior choices, and we listen to the tyranny of the urgent. Thirdly, if you look at this story, and maybe Jesus didn't exactly say it this way, but we learned that insecurity leads us to draw security from the wrong sources. Where was Martha drawing her security? From her performance. If she pulled off the dinner, she was going to feel good about herself. But is that a good reason to feel good about yourself? Is that what defined her? In effect, what Jesus was saying is, look, Martha, it really doesn't matter if you're a success with the dinner or you're a failure with the dinner. It doesn't matter if we all have to go to Taco Bell tonight. I mean, that's just allow the anachronism. That doesn't matter. You're drawing your security from the wrong source. See, so many of us are doing that today. Well, <laughs> I didn't mean to tell you this, but um, I did a series on insecurity 15 years ago. And I spoke 25 weeks on insecurity. Can you believe that? I started in May and closed the week after Thanksgiving. 25 weeks? Are you kidding me? Man, secure people be insecure by that time. <laughs> but I had a traditional church, and I, had, and I was wondering, did I have enough material for 25 messages? I listened to some of them. I had enough material. That's what screws up a traditional church, insecurity. So I want to sum up what I preached 15 years ago in probably about 10 sermons. Because if you want to know how to break the cycle of insecurity, you've got to learn to ask one question. You ready for this? God, 
tell me who I am. We're insecure. You ready for this, please? We're insecure because we have asked the wrong source to tell us who we are. And see, insecurity tends to come from rejection. And, and who's not going to deal with rejection? I mean, when you're young, it's not being picked for the team. Or when, you're, when you have your first breakup, it's giving your class ring back or defriending. Or, I mean, when we're young, it's that kind of thing. When we get older, it could be a divorce or being down, let go. So many times people look at their peers and say, tell me who I am. Kids do that at school. College students do it. Young couples do it. Do I measure up? Is my house as good as their house? Is my automobile as nice as their automobile? And as someone has said, it makes us Americans buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. <laughs> if you want to beat insecurity, here's what you do. You go before the God of creation and you say, God, tell me who I am. Let me just run through this real quick. Let me give you several things that God would say to you. Number one, God would say that if you've accepted Christ, you're his child. Do you realize? So much better than being CEO, being lead partner, being manager, so much better, all the, better off than being president is you can say, I am God's daughter. I am God's son. And the Bible says so deep is this relationship that we are born into God's family, John 3, and then we are also adopted into God's family. You talk about being God's child, you really are. Kids who have been adopted through the years have said to me, you know, my parents got to choose me. Well, you were born, you carry God's DNA in your soul, the Bible says in 1 John. And then on top of that, you've been adopted. God chose you. What would it mean to be God's child? It means you can get in to see him anytime. Oh, I don't have time to communicate this, but let me try real fast. Isn't it interesting that when God wanted to tell you about his relationship with you, he didn't call you a friend? That would be good, but friends can be let go. He didn't call you a, a, an employee because employees can be fired. God called you his child. Let me tell you something. You can be happy with a child, you can be unhappy with a child, but you can't ever, you can ever get rid of your child. You may want to, but you can't. Why? Because your child has your, has your DNA, and the Bible says that about us. The Bible says he cannot let us go because his seed remains in us. Mirror his child. And no matter what God is doing in this busy world, he will always talk to you. If you call New Spring and say, I need to talk to Mark, chances are you'll go through a bank of secretaries and assistants, and if I'm in a meeting, which I seem like I always am here, probably someone will tell you, I'm sorry, I can't get through to him. He's in a meeting right now. Can I take some information for you or whatever? But I'll tell you what, there are three young men who could call this office, and they could get right through in the middle of the busiest meeting. Their names are Jonathan, Jared, and Stephen Paul. They're my sons. If one of them calls the office, they'll get through. I was in a, a high-level meeting this week. And, and all of a sudden, my phone rang in my pocket, my cell phone, and it's the Chicago tune that is Stephen's ringtone. He and I both love Chicago. I, I said, excuse me, I got to take this call. I mean, I'm talking to, I mean, in an important meeting, I got to take this call. Why? Because this is my son. That's the relationship you have with God. You're his daughter. You're his son. God, tell me who I am. Well, 
I'm, I'm his child. God, tell me who I am. God comes back, and this is all throughout the Bible. God says, listen, you are loved with an unconditional love. I think a lot of insecurity comes about because we don't know how God feels about us. You're loved with an unconditional love. Man, we just don't realize the depth of God's love for us. You know what hit us so hard about the Casey Anthony trial? If indeed that woman brought harm to her child, how could a woman, how could a mother bring harm to that precious baby? God asked that question in the book of Isaiah. He says, can a nursing mother forget her baby? But God said, even if that were possible, if it were to happen, God said, I would not forget you. See, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. Some translations say engraved. I don't know if God has tattoos, but he says he has engraved your name on the palm of his hands. If you and I have experienced rejection that has led to insecurities that we're still dealing with today, maybe this third one ought to really resonate with us. Because if you were to ask God, listen, if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, and you say, God, tell me who I am, here's what God would say to you. You are accepted. Do you realize that? You don't have to, this is why I hate religion. God knows I hate religion. Religion says jump through the hoops and God will accept you. God accepts you unconditionally. God makes you his son, his daughter. He says, come like you are, and he won't leave you like he found you. But you are accepted. My son got an acceptance notice to WSU yesterday, and he was reading it to me. He's accepted. He can show up on campus. Why? He's accepted. And you're accepted by God if you've received Christ. The book of Romans says, accept one another that just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now, let me tell you how this works. Here's why it's so important to be accepted by God. You are, hope this is not news, you are going to be rejected from some, by some people. But if, here's another axiom, if acceptance comes from a higher source, you don't have to worry about rejection if it comes from a lower source. I'll give you an example. If I drove up to the White House in my Hyundai today, and the guard at the gate gave me a hard time, if the President Michelle invited me in for lunch, I'm not going to worry about the guard at the gate. Because I've been accepted at the highest level. And you've been accepted by God. Never ask another human being, never ask a group of people to tell you who you are. You give way too much power to those people. You only go before God and say, God, tell me who I am. I'm not worried about how I look. I'm not worried about... If I perform up to other people's expectations, my job is to please God. God, tell me who I am. Well, i got to quit now because I'm five minutes into overtime. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Lord, all of us deal with this, and I ask you to bear home by your Holy Spirit the most salient uh, parts to our individual lives, and that we'll grasp it and that we can break the cycle of insecurity. Help us to live with people who are insecure. By focusing on you, telling us who you are. Lord, I pray we won't make those three mistakes that Martha made. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you pray with me one more moment? It could be that you're here today and you're saying, Mark, when you talk about a relationship with God, I don't know that I have that. I'm maybe religious or I'm a nice person, but I don't know that I have a relationship with God. 
Well, I, I, I spent a little time in the message telling you that God loves you unconditionally. Do you realize that having a relationship with God doesn't come down to you being religious or you even being good because none of us can be good enough? If you ever wonder why Christ followers put crosses everywhere, it's because God punished his own son for your sin so that he could open the door to you receiving a relationship with him free of charge as a gift. Forgiveness, restoration, adoption into his family, everlasting life, all that is a gift. Jesus paid for it on the cross. And if you'd be willing to do what the Bible calls believing on him, not believing in him, but believing on him, that means you put your trust, and you, you put your, your confidence in Jesus, you, you rest upon him. If you'd be willing to put your trust in him and invite him into your life, then God would give you that gift and how do you get a gift? You just ask. I'm going to pray a prayer. And these aren't magic words. In fact, you don't even have to frame the words with your mouth because it's what you mean in your, in your inner person that matters. But I'm going to pray a prayer that reaches out to God, and I'm going to pray it slowly so that you can think about each line. If you'd like to join me in this prayer, I invite you to make the biggest decision of your life. You ready? Dear God, I know I come up short, way short, but the Bible says you love me unconditionally and you gave your own son Jesus to die in my place to pay for my sins. I ask you to forgive me and make me your child. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name.